Welcome to Final Fantasy Weekly. I'm Drew Creaseman. And I am Ira Creaseman. And on this episode, we continue our conversation on Final Fantasy VII. When last we left our heroes, a few weeks and a computer and some technical difficulties ago. All right, all right. <laughs> they had, uh, to appreciate everyone's patience. We're back into it. Our heroes had just finished an emotional chapter in their story, particularly in the story of Red 13 at Cosmo Canyon as he learned the true fate of his father Seto and the whole story with the Gi tribe. And as we are sort of wiping the tears away from our face and picking ourselves up to move on with the adventure still on the trail of Sephiroth trying to figure out what it is he's up to and what his tie is to our characters. Well, we've got to return to the place where maybe, arguably, maybe inarguably, it all began in Nibelheim. So it's worth noting that you can skip this part of the story. This is an optional part. Much like getting Yuffie is, is optional. You don't have to go back to Nibelheim, but it's cool to do so because, um, as we all know from the story Cloud told, Nibelheim had burned down. But you go to Nibelheim and it's fine. In fact, it looks exactly the way it did before. And Tifa says, hey, hang on, this, this all burned down, didn't it? Which yeah. makes me wonder, Tifa, did you not see it burn down? Right. Or, or d- does that mean she's questioning herself or is she questioning Cloud? And again, like we've talked about, they're not always clear about who knows what and how much Tifa knows and how much she's like trying to learn about what actually happened from Cloud. You, you can wander around town there are all these people around in black capes with numbers tattooed on them, typically on their hands. And, and they're saying, they're mumbling to themselves, they're saying things. Uh, you know, I must get it, must bring it to Sephiroth, then become one, must go reunion. Reunion. Yeah. First time we hear that word, yeah. You can go to Cloud's house. There's somebody living here, and Cloud's like, hey, this is my freaking house. house. I lived in this house until I was 14 years old, and the whole freaking thing burned down. And the guy in there is like, "You are sick saying such things. Get out of here." Yeah. <laughs> you got problems, man. Yeah. So you can go to the shop, and the shop's like, "Hey, nice town, huh? We've been here a long time." <laughs> like, who, who are you talking to? Right. You remember the Truman Show? Yeah, right, right. Who's <laughs> sometimes <talking> to? <laughs> she she's reading an ad, but it's like, yeah, she, yeah, like she's got to slip it in there while she's talking to him. So everything's weird, and they they make at first it's like, oh, is Cloud wrong? But then they make it pretty clear pretty quickly that nobody here is a very good actor. Yeah. One of the people in the black capes mentions the great Sephiroth is in the mansion, so that's where we're headed. But before we do, we should go to Tifa's room. Just like in Final Fantasy V, and just like in the uh, in the flashback, you can go to Tifa's room and play the piano. It doesn't do anything this time, but the next time you come back, it'll uh, give you Tifa's last limit break. Yeah. More importantly, whomever is using Tifa's room has used it to store some, what I have to assume are top secret documents, because one of them details clone activity reports, The clones seem to be sensing something. They say Reunion and Sephiroth. Okay. And then the second one uh, is a bit on the nose. Confidentiality report. Eight people have visited this quarter. Fortunately, none knew about the incident five years ago. No one... No one knows... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No one knows the town was restored. Our staff, disguised as townspeople, have improved their acting skills. It's like, what? Who writes this in a re- What? No. So that's, that's pretty obviously the game talking to us. That's the game saying to the players, yeah, we know. You know you're not crazy. No, Cloud's not crazy. Maybe. Right. Yeah, this is a setup. Yeah. 
So one of the clones mentioned uh, Sephiroth is in the mansion. So you can go to the mansion if you want. Again, this is optional. You don't have to do it. But it's a lot of fun, so we're going to do it. <laughs> yeah. In the mansion, there is a letter. I must get rid of all those who stand in the way of my research. Even that one from the Turks. I scientifically altered him and put him to sleep in the basement. If you want to find him, search the area. But this is merely a game I thought of. It's not necessary for you to participate if you don't want to. What? Oh. Who writes letters like this? Right? What? Who? Who are you talking to? <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. Again, this is the game talking to the player. Yeah. It basically said, there's an optional character here. You don't have to do it if you don't want to, but he might be asleep in the basement. This is to, to blow out a, a big picture conversation real quickly. One of our many themes in this game that I try to talk about a lot that we talked about in Final Fantasy VI. This game is more flawed than most other games in the series. There's a lot of stuff in here that is just kind of very directly, like you said, it, you're, they're talking to the player or certain things. Like nobody would write that way. They're particularly unsubtle. And uh, I think there are two things that need to be taken away from that. One, that's why it's being remade so that you can add layers and subtlety and nuance to some of these things that back in the day, the technology limited you to kind of just telling the player because it was better to do that than to leave them completely in the dark. But the other thing is to remember how small and comical these little flaws are that they do exactly that. Like, it's always been funny to me the way retroactively people have looked back on Final Fantasy VII and pointed out all the little things about it that are quite silly or that don't quite work, all of its flaws. And it's like, they're so inconsequential <laughs> right. and serve for basically player quality of life, right? So that we, we don't need to have to struggle with these little questions. It's okay if they just come and straight tell us there are big enough problems we're going to have to solve on our own in this game that making it that much more complicated wasn't going to help anybody. But yeah, I, I do kind of laugh at some of these moments that are just in this game that's really nuanced and interesting and, and challenging, the moments where it just totally isn't. <laughs> right, right. There are times when it's just, you know, fighting the goddamn frogs and getting no frog song, no frog song. Right. But, but that's not what people think of when they think of Final Fantasy VII. They might think of the bigger gameplay elements or the bigger thematic elements, like you're saying. They're not thinking about, why did Hojo write this stupid-ass letter? Right, right. There's a whole mini game with the uh, you know opening a safe, find the key. You go downstairs. There was a door you couldn't get through before, and you go through this door, and this is the coffin room. This is the room where they store all the coffins. I guess there's a lot. There's several coffins. <laughs> there's a bunch of desiccated corpses. This is the this is the horror movie room. Yeah bones, there are skulls, uh, and only one of the coffins is closed, and that's ominous on its own. Yeah, <laughs> I never really thought of it quite like that, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> our, our heroes go into the room, we're, we're basically disturbing the peace here, uh, and the person in the coffin throws the lid off the coffin, says, I don't know you, you must leave. A nightmare? My long sleep has given me time to atone. I have nothing to say to strangers. Get out! This mansion is the beginning of your nightmare. Cloud's like, you're telling me, buddy. Dude. Yeah. It's <laughs> been the beginning, the middle. I'm starting to feel like it's going to be the end. <laughs> yeah. Jimmy, Christmas. Which, I got to think, for the broodiest character in this whole game mm. is, is definitely Vincent, this character we're meeting now. But for him to brood so hard at these people and then have someone else like just brood right back at him... <laughs> <laughs> That's got to take him aback a little, right? It's like, oh, okay, I wasn't expecting somebody else to be almost as moody as me. Yeah, right? That's what a, right. What an introduction for the character of Vincent Valentine to come out of a coffin and immediately threaten our heroes with nightmares. Right, right. So Vincent Valentine is a tall, slender, pale-skinned, dark-haired, 
Uh, I would say he looks goth, except he's dressed all in red. I don't know, it was crimson goth a thing. Sure. I knew a guy in college who had like all these subset of goths that he explained to me. There's like sparkle goth and fairy goth and steel goth and industrial goth. I was like, yeah. all right, man, that's, that's cool. Sure, why not? So he's got a, a golden arm. Uh, yeah. I, I think it's meant to be a, a cybernetic implant, much like Barrett has a gun for an arm. And he wields firearm. He's also kind of dramatic, like he always twirls his gun after every shot yeah. and then reholsters it. <laughs> and he's a vampire, maybe? But he's also... Yeah. He's like the every Universal Studios monster. I think because he shapeshifts. Right. He has a, and you know, in the original game, because as we've said, this, this whole thing is optional. He's an optional character, which is pretty amazing considering the level of popularity he's reached and how many things, you know, he's, he's in all the subsequent materials plays a big part in Advent children, all this other stuff, but it has his own game now. (laughs) Not a great one, but it's there, and and it adds a lot more to his backstory. It gets a little clearer into what he was there, and it's amazing to me actually going back now, having played Dirge of Cerberus, and going back through this game, the speech that he gives here, how much of his backstory is laid there. But it's it, it, it's a, it's a great example of the opposite of what we were just talking about. This is very subtly done. He sort of explains a lot without telling you everything, without giving you the details. And so it just kind of sounds like gibberish at first. But yeah, he was once just a human. He was once a Turk, in fact. And, you know, we can get into more of his actual backstory from there. But it's unclear exactly what the experiments done on him have turned him into. Like you said, it it seems like it gives them sort of creative liberty to not call him a, a vampire or a, a Frankenstein's monster, but just allow him to turn into those types of things in battle. And then ultimately in, in Dirge of Cerberus for like storyline purposes, he's mutating and stuff. But for now, it's just a, a fun battle mechanic. And uh, you can learn a little bit more about his backstory later on. So there's some back and forth. Uh, he doesn't really want to talk about it, but he kind of does want to talk about it. It seems right? like he, I don't think he's talked to anybody in a long time. Right been in quarantine right jeez oh man do you suppose he's got wi-fi in his coffin mm-hmm. watching hulu <coughs> he explains that he was uh with shinra manufacturing in administrative research also known as the turks cloud explains well i was formerly a soldier and vincent says does that mean you know lucrecia it says her name right there in the first conversation how about that and he goes on to say she was the woman who gave birth to sephiroth well, now hang on a moment. Yeah. Hold up a minute. So I thought Genova was Sephiroth's mother. Right. And Vincent says, well, that's not entirely wrong. He was born from Lucrecia. She was an assistant to Professor Gast of the Genova Project. Beautiful Lucrecia. Yeah. Yeah. So essentially we get that Lucrecia, the assistant to Professor Gast, volunteered for this experiment. Basically, Professor Gast bombarded her with Genova cells, injected her with Genova cells. Not, we talked before about the bad science room that Hojo was in. Yeah. This is more of that bad science stuff. Right? Yeah. Like, you are absolutely not supposed to be experimenting on people. In fact, I, have, I teach AP research, and one of the things I have to talk to my kids about every year is some of the f- messed up stuff. I mean, in, in this country, we had people researching syphilis on human... Uh, you know, unknowing human research experiments. It was horrifying. Yeah. So yeah, this is absolutely the stuff you are not supposed to get up to. And Vincent blames himself. He says, I couldn't stop her. That is my sin. I let the one I loved, the one I respected most, face the worst. And then Tifa has a fantastic line. She says, so the punishment was sleep? That's weird. Yeah. To which Vincent just like pulls the coffin lid back over himself. (laughs) <laughs> like shut up you're weird yeah whatever let's listen to you but she's not wrong like right so so your response was to do nothing right and i i get that like i don't want to fight every fight it can be exhausting 
but just ignoring it doesn't do anything either. Right. And I think that is sort of the major theme of the Vincent Valentine character is despite everything that he's been through and we'll learn that it's much worse than the sort of surface level plot points he's given us so far, but still perhaps the other side of it being, it it certainly helps to have some people around who, whether it's Tifa kicking in the ass a little bit and saying, Oh really? That was your plan? Or as you said, cloud brooding right back at you and saying, you know what, buddy, I got problems too. (laughs) I don't even know what all of them are. Yeah, right, dude, straight up. Like I got so many problems. Some of them are literally pushed into the deep recesses of my very being. And it's going to require her standing right Uh here kicking your ass to mentally kick my ass. So, look, we all got to do this for each other. A very common theme of Final Fantasy, but taken to its uh, extremes with these three characters right here and right now and throughout the rest of of the story. Vincent won't talk to you anymore, so you can search a little further, because remember, one of those clones said Sephiroth was here. You can go back to the library where we saw Sephiroth the last time in this mansion, and he was learning about his origin as one of the last of the ancients and the and the son of Genova and maybe Gas did experiments on him. You go to the, the library and Sephiroth is here. He says, being here brings back memories. Are you going to participate in the reunion? Cloud says, I have no earthly idea what you're talking about. I'm so glad he says it so plainly. There are a number of times in this game where Cloud really does say, I think, exactly what any of us in that situation would say. And I think that's one of the things that makes him such a great protagonist, despite all of his many flaws and faults, hey, much like the game itself, is that ultimately him standing in the middle of this absurd situation goes, dude, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) None of us know what you're talking about, Sephiroth. Get it together. Please help me out here. So Sephiroth says, Genova will be at the reunion, becoming a calamity from the skies. Cloud says, so that means she wasn't an ancient? Sephiroth, of course, does not answer. Instead, he says, you know what? I don't think you have the right to participate. I will go north, past Mount Nibble. If you wish to know, then follow. And then he puts a pin in it on your Google Maps. You know how to get there. (laughs) He does, doesn't he? He totally does. And and we're we're sort of giggling about like the the game mechanics of it, right? Like you got to tell the char- you got to tell the players where to go next. But there's kind of I I kind of think Sephiroth wants Cloud there. I kind of think that he wants like this dude for all that Cloud is nothing to Sephiroth. Yeah. This guy's been messing with the plans. Like like he he's shown a lot of fortitude recently. I kind of think Sephiroth in whatever form or version of Sephiroth this is, wants Cloud to be there. He he's, he feels a, a connection to him. Yeah. No, I, I think there's a lot of evidence to support that claim. You pointed out when, you know, he had impaled the Midgar Zormer. Like, who yeah. did he do that for? That's performance art for Cloud and company. Um, and I think a lot of that is driven home in the remake. I know a lot of people weren't especially thrilled with how Sephiroth was handled in the remake. But I think if you look at it from the thematic point of view of exactly what you just said, he wants him there. He needs him there. In fact, Sephiroth almost needs to be around Cloud. He's drawn to him for a number of reasons that will become clearer and clearer as we get through it. But yeah, he's, he wants him there. I'm with you. And then he throws a piece of magicite at Cloud, plunks him right in the head, Another and flies away. <laughs> Another fun game. Like, oh, they need this piece of magicite at this point in the story. Let's just have Sephiroth throw it right at his head. <laughs> but buy sure. it. It's great. Yeah, why not? We're getting some hints as to what's going on and what comes next. This this Vincent guy knew the woman who gave birth to Sephiroth, but Sephiroth was also kind of the product of this scientific medical experimentation. And Sephiroth is is going to Mount Nibble to reunite with Genova, who was not an ancient, and Calamity from the Skies. Excellent. We've got... A picture is beginning to emerge. As we're leaving, Vincent comes out of the uh, coffin room. Says, wait. 
and he flies in and he sort of does this flip in midair because he's a show off. Yeah. He says, if I go with you, will I meet Hojo? But, uh, 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 probably, that seems plausible. Maybe. It's happened a couple of times. I mean, <laughs> we've, he was on a beach at one point. He was wearing his lab coat over at Costa del Sol, so you just missed him. <laughs> but let's see. <laughs> Honestly, Catch up yeah. with him at the next stop. Man. Vincent says, you know what? I've decided to go with you. Being a former Turk, I might be of help. Did we extend an invite that I missed? Did... <laughs> that was also, that was in the Google Friends meet thing. <laughs> So Vincent decides, probably because of Tifa nudging him and yeah. Cloud not impressed with his, with his broodiness, to, you know what, yeah, the, I, there is something that can be done. These people are doing it. If I want to at all be able to brood in peace ever again, yeah. I also need to do something. And I, again, he's an optional character. It is kind of sudden. It's a little, it's a little easy. It's like Kate Sith being like, well, if I don't, go with you, I'll never know whether or not my fortunes turned out to be true. And that will drive me crazy. And it's like, no, come on. That's yeah. fun. Let's, that feels like dumb writing. But there is a little more going on here. Yeah. And it does sort of hint at some of that. And if I were writing this novel, I would write it differently. But I don't think that it doesn't work. Right. And I think especially the more you learn about each of those characters and what their actual motivations are. Again, it could probably be done a bit smoother. And I suspect in the remake it will be. But they do both have even deeper reasons for coming along than it seems at first. It's more on our party, right? Like why are Cloud and, and Tifa and Barrett like, oh, sure, vampire person? And, and probably uh-huh. more with with Kate Sith, because I feel like Vincent actually does make the case here of like, well, I've got information. I used to be a Turk. Right. I know right. s- stuff about Sephiroth's mom. Like, yeah, this this guy's plugged in. Like, he could be very useful in the fight. You never know about trust and who's on your side. But as I learned in the most recent episode of The Next Generation that I just watched from Commander Riker, <laughs> just because mm-hmm. someone that you trust breaks your heart, Data... It doesn't mean that you don't trust. So we go north, past Mount Nibble, and we find our way to a little town that appears to have grown up around this derelict rocket looming in the background. I'm not entirely certain of the name of this town. It might be that the name of the town is Rocket Town, but also at one point someone calls it Shinra Number 26, which is the name of the rocket that's in the background of this town. It's kind of a quaint looking little town, little almost medieval looking, but it's got that giant space rocket in the background. Right. Uh, which is, you know, as we've said many times before, Final Fantasy is about juxtaposing those uh, aesthetic ideas that sort of the, it, uh, almost Miyazaki in that way, right? Where you've got the quaint mining town, but also like airships and stuff. Yeah. You know, floating islands. So it's, yeah, I, I really like that juxtaposition. It's a striking image to see the, the town with the, the giant rocket over it, the, the all of it, both the juxtaposition of different times, they feel like they're in two different eras, different technologies, and even just the scope of it, right? That all the other buildings in town are just humble, single-family homes, and then there's this, like, five-story high rocket built for going to space (laughs) as the backdrop for the area. It's very striking, unforgettable image. So, almost immediately, we hear about someone called the Captain. The Captain was a pilot when Shinra was still interested in their space program. I think it's really interesting that Shinra would have ever cared about a space program. Like, why would they want to do that? I kind of suspect it would be to, like, mine the moon, to get resources out of something out there, right? Like, they're just sort of trying to expand their scope. Right. 
He was going to be the world's first astronaut, but there was an accident. Ever since then, he's been wasting his life away here, dreaming about going to space. Like I said, it's a small town, so there's not a lot to do. There is a, a two-seater airplane with the Shinra logo on it and the name Tiny Bronco in someone's backyard. I don't know if that'll become important. Yeah, who knows? If you go into this house, there's a woman here in a white lab coat. And she's like, um, this is not an RPG. May I help you? What are you doing in my house? <laughs> <laughs> the hell? Uh, and we get another one of these moments where she's basically talking to us, the players. She says, if you'd like to use the plane, please ask the captain. He's in the rocket. I'm Shara, by the way. And what are your names? And everyone introduces themselves. And she says, so you're not with Shinra. I thought you were bringing approval for the space program. President Rufus is scheduled to come. The captain's been restless all morning. Thank you for the exposition, Shira. We appreciate it. Right. And also, hey, Rufus is coming good, because I want round two with that. Mm. Yeah. I guess I shouldn't censor myself, since we're going to be getting a lot of use out of your bleeper today anyway. <laughs> we got to pace ourselves on these. <laughs> the captain is obviously in charge around here. Let's go talk to the captain. He's in the rocket. So you got to climb up this set of stairs up to the dock, the sort of docking bay thing, and, and climb into the rocket. And uh, there's a man here. Sid Highwind is clad in what I've always thought is sort of work clothes and a bomber jacket. He's got blonde hair, sort of spiky uppy blonde hair. He's, I don't know if that's like natural bedhead or if he puts some stuff in it. He's got kind of a, a scarf and a, a dark blue, is it a leather jacket, maybe a jean jacket? Sort of working blue collar chic maybe? I don't know. Because he looks cool. But also like these are the clothes he works in. So they're probably grease stained. Uh, he probably smells like sawdust, you know. And he's always got a uh, cigarette in his mouth. Though in Kingdom Hearts, they, they changed that to be a straw. Yeah, which is great. Sure, why not? And boy, does he have a mouth on him. Yeah. This guy <laughs> is, we're about to find out that he's kind of a dick. Like, yeah. you and I both put Sid Highwind at the top of our Sid's list when we mm -hmm. did the, the 10 Best Sid's episode 100 years ago. Right. And it's not necessarily because he's a nice guy. In fact, he right. might be kind of a verbally abusive asshole. Yeah. No, he, I mean, he is. You, you can take might out of it. He's definitely a, a verbally abusive asshole. He's one of the most flawed main characters, just in terms of personality and, and ethics of all the heroes in the franchise. He's got a lot of problems. Now, I, I still think ultimately, you know, he is he's a good guy. He is a hero. He's... He's certainly not evil by any means. It's, you know, I think if there's anything we can compare it to that we've talked about up to this point in the show, it would be Edgar and, you know, his problematic ways with women. And uh, especially, you know, like maybe hitting on underage girls and things like that. Uh, real, real problematic potentially there. And yeah, the way Sid treats Shira is not good at all and not to be applauded but like we said about edgar at the time you know i think this game does present him as abrasive and doesn't applaud his behavior he's presented as somebody with these deep character flaws and personality traits that the people around him find to be problematic and troublesome and so you know whether or not you buy i guess his reasons for being this way or whether you even find it a little bit endearing and charming when it's not abusive and it's more you know and, and in later interpretations these a lot of these things have gotten softer obviously you know in, in advent children and in as you mentioned obviously in kingdom hearts they're they're all reinterpretations there but um, you know, I would suspect again in the remake that this will be lightened up because people don't want their heroes 
just screaming down at women who are being totally subservient to them. It's a terrible look. And it's a bold way to introduce a character and then ask us as a game-playing audience to ultimately empathize with this person and want them to succeed and want them to be a member of our party. And I think they successfully pull off that trick. So while, you know, it would probably be safer to not present a character with this particular personality trait, they, they walk a fine line here. And I think there's also a, a difficulty in fiction where sometimes we only present certain personality problems or, or issues that we really don't like in our villains. And we can already dismiss everything else that the villain does because on top of being an abusive husband, he also wants to take over the world and just murdered five people or, or whatever, right? And when it's like, hmm, he's being an abusive boyfriend, husband figure here, but he's not also trying to take over the world and he's not an evil man, he's not these other things. So what do we do with that? That's a, that's a tougher question to answer and one worth exploring, I think. So Sid, in his crusty, crusty way, says, what are you guys doing here? And we, and we explain, uh, hey, we heard the captain was here. He says, captain, I'm the captain. And then we get some exposition. Sid explains, Shinra developed a lot of technological gadgets during the Meaningless War, right? Now, it's a Mako company, but in the old days, it was a weapons manufacturer. Well, they came up with a rocket engine. There was so much excitement about going into space, our dreams got bigger and bigger. We made prototype after prototype and finally built Shinra number 26. Day of the launch, everything was going well. But because of that dumbass Shara, again, being a dick, the launch was messed up. Shinra nixed their space exploration plans. It was all over once they found out Mako Energy was profitable. They didn't even so much as look at space exploration. My dream was just a financial number to them. I was supposed to be the first man in space with this rocket. Every day, it tilts just a little more. So, so now we get at least some explanation of why he's such a crusty asshole. And we get more about what Shinra was and how it became what it is. So I, I do think this is really interesting. Yeah. And then one of our characters says, so can we borrow your airplane? So he says, you're out of your goddamn mother mind. That is my most cherished possession. I can't let you take it. I'm, now I'm, expand, I'm, I'm expanding on what he said a little bit uh, just because we get that Grolix. Right. So, you know, we're allowed to interpret what he said. Yeah. I assume it was a string of swear words uh, in the aggressive, abusive uh, way. I... I think you nailed it. <laughs> so we go to Sid's house. And Sid says, Shara, we've got guests. Make some tea. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> Again, he's... So we know now that he thinks Shara is responsible for whatever made it so that he couldn't go to space. And that's why he feels comfortable swearing at her like that. Yeah. And Cloud's like, I don't worry about us. And Sid is just as aggressive toward people he's just met. He says, <laughs> he says, shut up. Sit down and drink a goddamn tea. <laughs> Whoa. Hey, buddy. I've got a big sword here to tell you what to do with your tea. Uh, that is, we got to do it at some point, our top 10 single lines of dialogue sure. in Final <laughs> Fantasy history. And I do think that sit down and drink your goddamn tea is going to be on the list. It's just one of the, it sums up the character so much too, because it's, it's like, because he's also being polite and right. offering people tea and yeah, welcoming people hospitable. into his home. Yep. <laughs> but he's being extraordinarily belligerent about it, uh, which is just, it's great. It's the character in a line and it's, it's also become a, a meme and it, it's become pretty famous, but there alongside you spoony bard and I Garland will knock you all down. Now we get to include, though this one's great on purpose. <laughs> Sit down and drink a goddamn tea. So we are treated now to a flashback. Again, in Final Fantasy VII. 
Yeah. We should have been keeping a running count, man. <laughs> should have been. How many flashbacks? Yeah. So Shara explains that Sid is always like this, and, it's, and it is because of her. She's taken full responsibility here. She says, it was because of my mistake, I was the one who destroyed his dream. So we go into our flashback, and they're running around. It's the day of the launch, and Sid says to Shara, don't take too much time checking that oxygen tank. Being careful is good, but no matter how many times you check that tank, it won't matter. You're not stupid, so be more efficient. So again, being kind of aggressive, but also you're smart, be more efficient. Mm -hmm. Like that's that's not mean necessarily. He's just maybe that's part of the vocabulary. I, I've I've known people like this whose vocabulary sounds more aggressive than they mean to be. Mm -hmm. I work in sports. I've known a lot of people <laughs> like that. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. They get everything ready, and Sid runs up to the cockpit, and he's going to fly this rocket. Uh, and suddenly, there's an emergency situation. A mechanic is still in the engine section of the rocket. And it's Shara. And Shara says, don't mind me. Go ahead with the launch. Something's wrong with the oxygen levels. And Sid says, but you'll be incinerated. And Shara says, oh, this hurts me. She says, I don't mind. Um, you go on ahead with your dreams, Captain Sid Highwind. I don't mind. Like, dude, no, come on. Ugh, heartbreaking. I read that a couple of ways. One, she really does diminish herself to others. Like, she, she really is about, not only does my life not matter compared to yours, but my life doesn't matter compared just to your dreams. But there's also kind of this, it's almost like what she would prefer to do is focus on her work, and she wants this to be a success, and if she dies in the service of her work, like that's fine with her, which also hurts. Exactly right. I, I think, and I think it is in a lot of ways, both of those things, you know, and, and it is in service to the work that they did together. And, you know, she says your dreams here, but as a member of the team, as presumably a scientist in her own right, someone capable of checking and fixing the oxygen levels here i'm sure she would have been just as excited as anybody else at the notion of going to space and and being a part of something like that and you know we see in a lot of film and television and you know it, soldiers usually you know giving up their lives for an idea that they believe in and you know we we sort of understand that and so while in this case, I think a lot of people have a hard time with it, especially because, like you said, that first interpretation can be like, girl, you ain't got to die for him. <laughs> like, uh, totally. But again, if, if this is our reinterpretation, if we were in charge of the remake or writing the novelization or the, the television or, or film version of this, uh, I think I would play into that element as, as hard as possible that she's making a noble sacrifice here. I don't want to take any agency away from Shira in my interpretation, I guess. And maybe that's errs on the side of an incorrect interpretation. So, I don't know. You walk a fine line there, but uh, I do think that at least the, the interpretation that makes me feel the fuzziest <laughs> is, sure, sure. is the one where she wants this too. She wants to go to space and you know what? There are worse ways to give your life in service of something than the very first manned mission to space that also would bring... Now, it wouldn't because you're also going to die, but if you convince yourself, and it fulfills the dream of this person I love, and I want him to have his dreams fulfilled too, so uh, how selfish of me would it be to just put myself as the one thing that stops this all from... Like, I get her logic. I really do. So the rocket gets maybe 10 feet off the ground and then drops back to Earth because Sid hits the button. And it's a yeah. really cool cutscene. It, it goes up a bit, like there's the, all the smoke and the, I don't know, exhaust or whatever that, that goes with uh, 
with a rocket launch. Oh, the space it goes dump. up a bit, and then it drops to Earth, and it leans over. It's a really cool cutscene. Mm-hmm. Shara explains, He pushed the emergency engine shutdown switch, aborting the mission, to save my life. After that, the space program was cut, and the launch was canceled. It's my fault his dream was destroyed. That's why it's all right. I don't care what the captain says. I'll live my life for him. And... Yeah, yeah I, that I, seems unnecessary. Yeah, she's she's too hard <laughs> on herself, and even if you screwed up, you don't get to, you, people don't get to treat you that way. It's not right. okay. Right, totally. Now, Palmer comes in. Remember Palmer? <laughs> Remember Palmer? He's the uh, one who wanted lard in his tea. That is the uh, right way to remember him. That's <laughs> the short dude wants the space program funded. Likes uh, I again, like we said before, I'm pretty sure that's meant to be butter in his tea. It was a, a translation goof. So he comes in. He says, "Sid, how you been? A long time no see." And Sid says, "Palmer, how long are you going to keep me waiting, you little sh?" <laughs> I may have interpreted a little bit there. At least he's consistent. No, I right. <laughs> So it uh, turns out President Rufus is outside. So Sid goes out to talk to Rufus, and we, being Avalanche, just sort of like, I mean, our characters go outside and like Rufus doesn't see us immediately, so I have to assume that's sort of like a we're peering around the doorway sort of thing. Yeah, right. We uh, start to eavesdrop in the middle of a, an argument. So it says, you got me all excited for nothing. What'd you come here for, motherfucker? <laughs> Again, I'm interpreting a bit. Yeah. Rufus says, I need to borrow the tiny Bronco. And I have to wonder, like, is this the only airplane in the world? We know there are helicopters. We saw the airship. But, like, Rufus has to come to Sid for the, what, the only two-seater airplane in the world? <laughs> Fine, whatever. That doesn't matter. doesn't matter. He says, we're going after Sephiroth, but it seems like we've been going in the wrong direction. We have to cross the ocean. And Sid says, F*** you, you piece of shit, I swear to God, I'm going to shove this spear so far up your ass. We get a Grawlix. And I'm, again, I'm assuming that's what he says. <laughs> he says, first the airship, then the rocket, and now the tiny Bronco. Shinra took outer space away from me, and now you want to take the sky away too. Rufus says, you seem to forget. It was because of Shinra you were able to fly in the first place. Capitalism owns you and your ideas and your passions is yeah. the impression so yeah you know politics games whatever all your data are belong to us i guess yeah Ugh. so shara uh says guys over here so we go back inside and she says i believe palmer is going to take the tiny bronco because yeah palmer's not here anymore so we go out back to the backyard and palmer is sitting on top of the airplane and he's complaining about having to do this when he's head of the space program, why do I have to steal the airplane? I am the head of the space program. It's, dude, it's because you're the head of the space program. <laughs> you know how machines work, right? And he's finally starting to catch on. He says, hey, haven't I seen you somewhere before? Oh, I know. The Shinra building. When the president was killed. And then we have a fight. Palmer, and he's got yeah. a gun, and it shoots Mako spells, and it's really cool. Yeah. In the background, the plane starts up and, and begins to rotate, and we get that uh, Indiana Jones scene where he almost gets decapitated <laughs> by the uh, by the propellers. Uh, and at the end of the fight, he runs away, and then just out of nowhere, this Shinra truck just comes in and <laughs> slams right into him, and he, he flies away like a dodgeball. It's ridiculous. And I it's love one it. of the most absurd things in the history of Final Fantasy. And we're not talking about like 
interdimensional beings showing up out of nowhere and like no 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 no. I'm not talking about that. <laughs> Different kind of absurd. This is just slapstick out of left field. Just absolutely make you laugh out loud at a human being getting hit by a truck, which should not be a laugh out loud kind of event. Right. <laughs> no, no matter how despicable the person. And it's legitimately funny. Like, there's it no is. way to pretend like it's not. From out of nowhere. And I always, I, I said it's, he bounces away like a dodgeball. I've always got, you know that dodgeball sound? Yeah. Yeah. I've, yeah. That always plays in my head, even though it doesn't play in the game. Just yeah. that high-pitched, almost metallic sound. <laughs> just, and that's just the end of that. Yep. So uh, the plane <laughs> just... is on, because the head of the space program does know how to fly a plane, I assume. And we all pile in, and Sid jumps on. So we, we take off, and I we sort of like Buzz, Rufus, and the Shinra soldiers as we're taken off, which is pretty cool. Very Top Gun of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So they, they shoot at the plane, because that's what you do, right? Uh, and the yeah. tail is hit by gunfire, and Sid gets a great line. He says, hold on to your drawers and don't piss in them. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> That is a great line. What a great thing for a pilot to say. <laughs> so the plane crash lands out at sea, and it won't fly anymore, but it can be used as a boat. Uh, and Sid has a helpful bit of information. He says Rufus said he was going after Shinra to the Temple of the Ancients. Oh. We got a new target in mind. We got a new location to go to. So from a gameplay perspective, the world has opened up a little bit more. You know, like we said before, it's just sort of opening up in these stages. So now we can sort of ride around the ocean on the tiny Bronco like it was a boat. I'm on a boat! I'm on a boat! I'm on a boat! Everybody look at me because I'm sailing on a boat! So there are lots of places you could go now. And the next place we should go for storyline reasons is the Temple of the Ancients. But before we do that, there is another optional section. And I really like this section. And if you didn't get Yuffie, it won't happen. Yeah. But it's so cool. Yeah. So we've mentioned before that Shinra had been at war. That, you know, Sephiroth was a great war hero. Cloud joined Soldier in order to fight the war. What war? Why do they have that giant gun pointed at some nebulous target across the ocean? Well, it's pointed at Wutai. And they don't really get into it too much here. Like, they, the war with Wutai is mostly implied... And then they get into it in, is it Crisis Core? Yeah. And obviously much more detail in the remake. But the, the story we get here is a much more personal one. We're going up toward this area, toward Wutai, and there's a big swingy bridge. And Yuffie says, wait, 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 wait. And she gets in your way. I'm like, what now, Yuffie? And she says, look, I know this area pretty well, and it gets pretty tough past here. You better get ready. And Tifa says, really? Something tells me I shouldn't trust you. Are you going to trick us again? Tifa says, no, no, no. It's really, really tough. And then we're ambushed by Shinra soldiers. And Tifa says, what? What's this? I have nothing to do with this. Klaus says, what do you mean nothing to do with this? So you were trying something? <laughs> and Yuffie runs off before the fight begins. Uh, yeah. And then, and then you fight Shinra, these Shinra soldiers, and you don't have any of your materia. Not any. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we realize that Yuffie has stolen our materia. So we follow her to Wutai. So Wutai, it looks like a, uh, a picture of a Japanese, a traditional Japanese town. Like it's got those uh, Tori gates, uh, and it's got these tall pagoda-style looking buildings, and all the lacquered shingles on the roofs. It's really neat. 
and Yuffie is here, and she runs. Once she sees you, she runs away. You can you can wander around. Uh, you are told a couple times that Wu Tai is a historical place. There's some unusual things here you can see. Uh, you can go to the weapons store, and they won't sell you nothing. They will tell you they are all sold out, even though there are all these weapons all over the walls. Yeah. And we've run into this before, right? Where you go to a town and, and nobody will sell you anything. Like, remember Thamasa in Final Fantasy VI? Right. Where, you know, staying at the end cost a million deal or something. They all pretend not to know magic and all that stuff. And, right. You know, very, very hostile. It's also interesting that this is one of the few very clearly inspired by, like, ancient Japan places in all of Final Fantasy, which is, you know made in Japan, largely right. by Japanese people. They, as we talked about, pull from all kinds of cultures and not that often from their own. So it is cool when occasionally they do and, and you get to go into this. And I, I really love Wutai, the look and feel of it, the music, the, as you said, the picturesque quality of it, and, and even the way it feels a little bit foreign and a little bit like hesitant of outsiders and uh, you know which Japan at the, at the time you know especially before industrialization was really reticent to that and and there is that real world analogy of for anyone who's seen you know the film the last samurai like that kind of very difficult battle between the traditions and the importance of a certain way of life that had been so important for so long and the eventual kind of inevitability of modernization and that thematically is playing out here in Final Fantasy 7 as Wu Tai maintains its traditions and from across the waters the giant corporate mechanized regime literally has a giant cannon pointed at their head saying modernize or else. Yeah. So uh, the Turks are here. They're just in this restaurant chilling. Uh, Elena, Reno, and Rude. No Seng, just those three. You know, our, our team wanders in and Elena says, you know, Elena is the, the gung-ho one at this point. She hops up. She says, how'd you get here? Never mind. It's fate that has brought us together. Get ready to die. And Reno's like, Elena, you talk too much. What are we doing way out here in the middle of nowhere? And Elena stops and she looks around. And she says, well, we're taking a vacation. And Rude says, even the booze tastes bad now. And Elena stops and she sits down and, and, and that's that. <laughs> Fair enough. I like Elena. I do too. I feel like they talk down to her too much. But I, I appreciate how gung-ho she is and how not gung-ho the rest of them are. Yeah, it's that it's back to that analogy of the way a lot of whether it's military or police structures are a lot like sports teams in that way. And, you know, they have rookie hazing and it, this feels like exactly that. Right. She's excited to be on the job. She's just excited to do the work. And they're to the point where actually they're even on a, on a deeper level, if we want to make something real out of it, like not so sure about this job anymore. <laughs> like it's right. kind of dirty, yeah. man. And she's just like, I can't believe I'm a Turk. And they're like, oh, I'm not, can't believe I'm a Turk still, you know, kind of yeah. Yeah. still doing this. So you can wander around a bit more. Someone does make the point that Wu Tai only gets by thanks to tourists now. They lost the war. Now it's a tourist trap. It does make me wonder if the town, you know, looks picturesque and it's sort of a put on, maybe a little Disneyland-esque. Yeah. You know, they're as modern as the rest of us maybe, but they, you know, they, the town remains traditional. They wear traditional clothes, but when they go home, they're in sweatpants like the rest of us. Mm-hmm. There is, so, you know, we said there was, they won't sell you any weapons in the weapon shop. There's also a materia shop where there's no materia, but there's a, <laughs> there's a materia you can find. And if you find it, Yuffie will drop from the ceiling, steal it from you, and run away. (laughs) Uh, Fantastic. There is the pagoda of the five mighty gods that we can't do anything with right now, but it exists, and we'll come back to it later. And eventually, you can go to the house of Lord Godo. Lord Godo says, I don't know anyone named Yuffie. 
In fact, I've never seen you around before. Are you with Shinra? I don't want Shinra looking over my shoulders all the time. And then Yuffie shows up. She says, what's wrong with you, you coward? She just drops from the ceiling. You scared of Shinra? Then why don't you bow down and obey like all the other towns? These guys are at least fighting Shinra. So she steals from us, but she's also on board. Right. And Gota says, what would you know about it? She says, you got beat. So what? That's it? What happened to the mighty Wutai I used to know? And Lord Goto says, you're a rotten daughter. And she says, you're a sad excuse for a father. And then she runs away and she slams her door and she puts on, I don't know, what's, what's the music you would put on? Uh, Panic at the Disco. There it is. <laughs> Loud. Just crank that sucker up. Should have gone with like AFI or something. I right. right. Well, so in the 90s, what was that music? Because it was 97, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're in the middle of another domestic dispute, right? Like dad and daughter aren't getting along and she wants him to fight and, and he's not going to fight because, again, giant freaking cannon on the other side of the ocean pointed right at us. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> we're still looking for Yuffie and our materia, so we go around town looking for her and we eventually sort of corner her and she's like, okay, okay, you win. I'll give you back your materia. And then Shinra soldiers do show up. They go to the bar first because they're looking for the Turks. And Reno says, no, we're off duty. We can't save your butts. Looking at you is making me sober. <laughs> yeah. So the soldiers are like, fine, we'll get them without any help from the Turks. Just you wait. Get who you might ask? We will reveal that shortly. Bah. So the soldiers leave, and Elena says to Reno, Are you sure that was a good idea? Is that the way a professional would act? And Reno has the line of the frickin' episode. Mm. He says, Those who sacrifice themselves for their jobs aren't pros, just fools. Mm. But this game isn't about capitalism. Right? right, 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 right. In fact, I was listening to an episode of another podcast recently. You might be familiar with it. Sure. Uh, and they had a whole episode about crunch culture, right? Right. About how game companies will spend hours and hours and hours of overtime not paying their people well to put out these AAA titles. In fact, Reno's line here, those who sacrifice themselves for their jobs aren't pros, just fools, might be a call-out of Final Fantasy VII itself because surely they had to work long hours to make it happen. And if it's your right. passion project, that's something else. But if capitalism with its boot on your neck, is telling you you have to or you're going to lose your job because somebody else will come in here and do it. Yeah. Then you, then it's not really a freedom situation, is it? Then it's not really uh, a matter of agency and mobility. As you said, it's it's the proverbial boot on the neck. It, it is only under threat. If it is only under threat that your system works or that your... <laughs> Yeah, your society functions, then it, you should probably build a new system. So yeah, I'm with I'm with Reno, and and I think when you've been doing it as long as Reno and Rude have, you can continue to sit and drink, and call people who sacrifice themselves for their jobs fools. But Elena, like you said, she is the enthusiastic one, right? She's gung ho. She's excited to be a Turk, so she runs off to help. So we go back to our heroes, and Yuffie is explaining what's going on, why she did what she did. She says, "Before I was born." Wutai was a lot more crowded, much more impressive. Now it's just a tourist trap. After the war, we got peace, but we lost something. That's why I thought if I had a lot of materia, I could... And Cloud, mm. being kind of a, kind of a dick, mm -hmm. I don't care about the history of Wutai or your feelings. Give no. back our materia now, and we'll drop <laughs> the whole thing. <laughs> Didn't have to phrase it quite like that, but okay. Right. You'd think he might be a little more understanding. So we're in this room, and Yuffie says, all right, the lever on the left, materia is in there. And you're given the option to flip either the lever on the left or the lever on the right. <laughs> Which would you choose, Drew? Well, at this point, right, she's proven herself to be enough of a liar. I think the natural inclination is to go with the one on the right. <laughs> Turns out no matter which one you pull... Yep. The cage drops on you no matter what. Just yep. And you're trapped. <laughs> says, ha ha, the materia is mine. If you want the materia, you got to steal it. And she runs off. Like, God damn it, Yuffie. Yeah. So we cut to a, a new scene. And Yuffie has been captured. Not by the Shinra soldiers or the Turks, as you might think. But by Don freaking Cornero. 
Right. And Dunk says, I finally got a new chickie. Two for one, in fact, because he's also <laughs> captured Elena. So the person that Shinra is after here, the, the reason the, uh, the Shinra soldiers are here is because of Don Cornero. Because remember, he gave away the game about the plate. So they're after him. Right. And all he cares about is trying to capture and presumably do horrible things to pretty young ladies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he runs away. There's like only one other place to go. There's this big cliff face overseeing Wutai. And it's been carved with these uh, images. I assume of the five mighty gods of the pagoda, but they never quite make that clear. No. We run up to this trail and we go up this cliff and we're like climbing over these big carven images and it's really cool. And the Turks arrive, Reno and Rude. And Reno says, look, we're not joining you. We're only agreeing not to fight each other for now. And I have to assume, since he and Rude have been drinking this whole time, that he's wasted. Yeah, right. <laughs> We're not friends. It's not friends with these other guys right either. <laughs> right. So we, we climb up the cliffs and the Turks go one way and we go another way. And we finally find that Don Cornero has somehow managed to get these girls strapped to the face of one of the carbon gods. And there's this hand that's sort of projecting out over the town of Wutai that he's standing on. He's got a, like a remote or something. And he presses it and they get turned upside down. And he's, he's trying to choose between them, right? Like, which one am I going to be creepy and yeah. Don Cornero at? Yeah. And so finally we, we get up to him. Now, well, so he, he chooses Yuffie over Elena for whatever reason. Uh, Yuffie is not impressed. And then our heroes show up and we get that flashback music. Like, we're about to have another flashback. He says, none of you know what I've been through since then. And Cloud says, do not care. Let them go. Cloud's like, I'm the only one who gets flashbacks here. Not you. <laughs> so he manages to unleash a monster upon our heroes. Uh, we defeat the monster. We're about to punch him right in his smug nose. And he says, wait, wait, wait. Once I push this button, they'll fall. And then the Turks stride in. this would happen ever since you leaked that secret. We're going to take care of you personally. And I assume he means dropping the plate. That's the secret. So yeah. Rude is, uh, so that, you know, that's Reno. He's right here with us. And Rude, over by Elena and Yuffie, he, he throws something or he maybe he fires a weapon, but it, it hits Don Carnero and he slips and he falls and he grabs onto the hand and he's just barely hanging there. And Reno steps on his fingers. He says, why do you think we would team up with these three guys? And he does like uh, Don Cornero did with us. He gives them three options. And it's not any of the options. He just lets his foot off. And Don Cornero drops and says, no, because it's our job. Yeah. So on the one hand, they do it to Don Cornero. On the other hand, that is messed up, man. Yeah. I don't know. I'm fine with it. <laughs> <laughs> totally fine with it. So then they get a phone call. And Reno answers the phone and says, uh-huh, uh-huh. says, yeah, we'll get right on it. In the meantime, Rude is uh, letting Yuffie and Elena free. I mean, you know, cuts them free and they all get down from the, the face of the carbon image. And Elena says, was that the company? Reno says, yeah. They want us to find Cloud. And Rude says, are we on? Reno says, nah, today's our day off. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and thank you to everyone who has reached out to us. 
Feel free to let us know what we missed, got wrong, or should have mentioned by following us on Twitter at FFWeeklyPod or sending an email to FinalFantasyWeekly at gmail.com. You can also visit us on Patreon at patreon.com slash FFWeekly for more episodes and content and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Join us next time when we visit the Temple of the Ancients and uncover a deeper truth about the threat Cloud and Friends face. But before that, he has to go on a date.